1: Welcome to episode 559 with my guest Neil Woods. I am Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the bullshit rattling around in our heads. I'm not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. More like a waiting room. That doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Metalpod, also the social media handles that you can follow us at. Let's dive into some surveys. Uh, This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by Shaquille Oatmeal. And uh, she asked, would you rather get trapped inside a video game or have that video game come to life in the real world? Oh, that that is a difficult one. I just know I would not want to get trapped inside a video game. Yeah. Yeah. Would you rather know how you will die or when you will die? I actually would like to just see the look on my face as I die so that I can adjust as necessary. Would you rather have a rewind button or a pause button on your life? Well, I know I'm I'm supposed to say I wouldn't want a rewind button because I need to make peace with the past, but that's bullshit. I'm going to rewind. I'm going to redo some shit so that I look better. Would you rather have 10,000 spoons when all you need is a knife or always have a knife but never be able to use spoons? You know, I don't need 10,000 spoons. I probably only need 1,500 spoons. But I'm going to go with uh, having a knife and never able to use spoons. And uh, probably going to have to give up soup any comments to make the podcast better. Honestly, nothing comes to mind other than you should go fuck yourself. Duly noted, I am on it. This is an email that I got from Rosie, and she writes, um, and and this is experiences that happened in the UK court system and she has since migrated to uh, Australia. But she writes, I was abused as an adolescent by an uncle. In my 20s, around 10 years ago, I reported the abuse to the police. The resulting court proceedings resulted in an immense amount of fresh trauma, losing my day-to-day power to the police's ongoing evidence demands, shamefully realizing my grandparents knew I did sexual things with my uncle, along with being emotionally abused by family members saying I was to blame and threatening me to drop the case. The list of additional traumas suffered throughout that time is very long, and I am sure through your work you have a good awareness of them. What you might not be aware of is it was and often still is common practice for the police to advise against or even fully deny victims access to mental health support for the duration of the court case. The reason being, discussions about the abuse may, quote, taint the evidence, and then in parentheses, the evidence here being the victim. And if any counseling is permitted, then typically all notes from the counseling must be submitted as evidence in court and can be questioned by the defense or prosecution in front of the whole courtroom. Fun, hey, question mark, smiley face. For the 18-month duration of the court case, 18 of the most traumatic months of my life, I was directed by police not to see a counselor or psychologist. I was in crisis and had no support as my family had seemingly dissolved or turned against me, yet I was denied access to mental health support. This year, almost a decade later, I was saddened to learn this practice still happens. At their most vulnerable victims are denied their basic human right to freely access mental health support. This can lead to ongoing mental health issues which could have been reduced if help was sought earlier. I finally found the courage to try and do something about this. I first complained to the police who were unhelpful. Feeling even more hurt, I then contacted a member of parliament. In a wonderful serendipitous twist, The same MP was, unbeknownst to me, preparing to fight for this practice to change. She was and still is fighting it, fighting for it to be illegal for counseling notes to be used as evidence in court, which would absolutely improve the experiences for victims who could then freely access the same mental health support as everyone else during the trial. Not only did the MP Follow-up on my complaints to the police, resulting in an apology from the chief of police, but incredibly, she asked if she could use my story in her speech in Parliament. The day of the speech became one of those immense, life-changing moments for me that feels like it permanently changed me and my path in life. Hearing my story being used for positive change and having someone so powerful fight in my corner Helped me, realize, helped me release a decade of emotion. The MP helped rewrite my story, and she was one of the few heroes of my life. I am so fucking incredibly happy to have gotten to this point, when only seven or eight years ago, I could hardly even look at a police officer without feeling shame, fear, and anxiety. I wish you all the best and hope you have a lovely day. Actually, no, let's not stop there. A lovely life. With love, Rosie. Actually, I'm going to split the difference, and I'm going to have a lovely month. Because a day seems a little short, but a, a life seems a little greedy. But in all seriousness, uh, that just... Uh, I love reading emails like that. Not, not only to, to hear that things are being done to change the struggles that the survivors have, but to just see personally how much that impacted her life and just the, the light returning in her uh, in her soul, so beautiful. This is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Mac, and she writes, when I was 21, I was drugged and almost forced to have group sex. But a girl, giving another guy a blowjob, threw up on him and started yelling that it smelled so bad down there she couldn't finish. She grabbed me and we left. On my way down the stairs, I barfed all over their garbage cans. And if I ever form a band, it will be called Saved by Vomit. That, if that's not an awful moment, I, I don't know what is. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey, filled out by Swamp Hag 204 <laughs> You know she's brimming with self-confidence. And she writes, have you considered compiling a funny moments episode? It's okay if you don't, but I have some personal favorite moments. There was one episode a few years ago where you interviewed a man with Asperger, Asperger's, and prior to the interview, you shared a hilarious story about being put on hold for a nut butter order. And the most recent episode where you read a hilarious email from someone named Israel Barney. I was crying, laughing. I love that idea. And uh, seeing as my memory is horrible and I don't really keep track of what I said in past episodes, if if you guys want to email me uh, moments that you would like included in a potential funny moments episode just tell me what episode it was from and uh, at what point in the episode it occurs you know the 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 time code and uh, I would love to put that together thanks for thanks for that idea our sponsor today as always is betterhelp.com online counseling if you have never tried counseling from the comfort of your own home or your car some people, if uh, they can't get a little privacy in their, in their home, they, uh, they go sit in their car and use their phone. And better uh, BetterHelp, you can do video, you can use audio, you can use live chat, you can send messages, whatever you're comfortable with. They are licensed in all 50 states, and I've been using them for a couple of years now, and I am a, I'm a big fan. So if you're interested in trying it out, go to betterhelp.com mental. Make sure you include the slash mental part so they know that you came from the podcast and then just fill out a questionnaire. And if they have a counselor that they feel is a good fit for you, they will pair you up with one and, uh, you can receive a discount off your first month of counseling. I believe it's a 10% uh, discount off your, uh, your first month of, of counseling. I don't know why I It's based on that right now, but there you have it. And then finally, this is an awful moment uh, submitted by Sad Girl since 97, and uh, she writes, My parents live in a house with two-story tall windows that overlook a backyard full of thick, beautiful trees. Simply standing in the living room makes it feel like you're in a treehouse. My parents are both chiropractors, and the first time a hummingbird flew into our window, my dad thought he might be able to save it by giving it a spinal adjustment. Holding its tiny, slender body, he grabbed the bird's beak, twisted, and gently released. One, two, three times. The bird sat in my dad's hand for a few more minutes and calmly enjoyed a drink of water and some grape jelly my mom brought outside when it was ready the hummingbird flew away as if nothing had happened. At this point my dad has successfully adjusted and saved three hummingbirds and my mom has also saved one. Both of my parents have always acted distant and apathetic at least towards their children. Their inability to express emotion and lack of concern for mine and my siblings mental and emotional well-being has caused great pain in all of us over the years. I've been in therapy for almost six years now, attempting to make sense of their behavior and process my codependency, love addiction, and fear of abandonment and intimacy. I've often wondered if they care about anything other than their own well-being and financial security. But watching them save the hummingbirds has restored some hope in me that, ultimately, they're willing to sacrifice their time and energy for another's well-being without expecting something in return, and that... Maybe they would go out of their way to support and nourish me if I flew into a window.
0: I just wanted to get the fuck away from my life. You know, I couldn't have felt any lure. Grief, guilt, shame. Why wasn't I born a girl? There's a switch that gets flipped in my head. I'm supposed to be a girl. I experience
1: being treated like an animal. How can a just God... I have a vomit fetish. Let
0: humans do this to each other.
1: Help! I fucking flew over the cuckoo's nest. My wife's losing it.
0: I thought it was all about me.
1: I don't know what to do. I would have committed suicide if I could have watched my funeral. A Polaroid I found of my mother um, naked in a dentist chair. And my body doesn't quite...
0: I think I did eight days in L.A. County Jail. Fit how I see myself. What was it all for? Why are my friends dead? Everything that I did... There's a comfort in the scars for me. ...was in service of OCD. You've already had all the paper cuts. Step away from the paper Paper. It's really hard to see the picture when you're inside the frame. You
1: know, it takes a larger view to see your life. Just actually have somebody listen to you. Yeah. And I got up and got my tooth and left.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'm here with Neil Woods, who is an author, uh, is an ex-policeman, an ex-undercover, uh, what would it be, a narcotics officer, drug?
0: Yeah, that's about right.
1: Yeah. Uh, you're based in Britain. And... Uh, I became aware of you. I was watching um, I was on YouTube and I watched a thing called Insider and uh, I'm trying to remember what the title of the piece uh, that you did. What was the, t- the title of it? What it's like to be undercover or oh, oh what the drug trade is really like or something?
0: Um, I've done a few things for insider. I think that one must be, um, how crime works,
1: how crime works. Yes. Uh, fascinating interview. And I'm so excited that we're able to to get you on the podcast because there's so many aspects to your experience and your thoughts on our current drug wars that I think intersect with the mental health arena. Mm. Um, you you have a book out it's called good cop bad war um and in it you talk about the fact that you feel and you did an in insider as well that you feel that you have done a lot of damage um not intentionally but uh, I'll, I'll let you take the ball from here and
0: yeah i mean I, the kind of undercover work i did um was sort of low level. It was starting at the at the lowest level of the street level and trying to work my way up. Um, not the kind of sophisticated uh, undercover work that perhaps films uh, features. But um, essentially, I would, I, I would spend six or seven months on any kind of deployment on inner city areas up and down the United Kingdom, as far north as Leeds, as far south as Brighton. And what I would do in order to... Manip- infiltrate those, those, uh, those um, communities in order to get connected to the gangsters who were supplying drugs to those communities. I would pretend to be uh, like living, uh, living almost homeless, uh, living in squats, you know, really pitch myself at the, at, the, at the lowest level. And what I would do is I would pick on the most vulnerable people in those communities and manipulate them. And the reason I would pick on the most vulnerable is because, for one, they were the easiest to manipulate. Um, and if, if, if that sounds ruthless, well, it is ruthless. That's <laughs> that's that's the, that's the essence of, of the war on drugs. It's it's the idea that you can cause harm to a, to a small group in, in order to try and gain some success against some others. So, and that's what I used to do. I, I used to ethically justify that to myself. I, I, you know, as time went on, I became increasingly aware. That I was causing harm, emotional harm, to some very vulnerable people, but I justified it to myself on the principle that the end justified the means. That seven months later, I would be catching some gangsters and putting them in prison. Um, but you know, as time went on, the acute nature of the harm I was causing to those people became more and more apparent. And, for example, one operation in um, Nottinghamshire, in, in Nottingham. I befriended this guy. He was good fun. Um, He was on bail for dealing for this gang that I wanted to get close to. You know, and I just enjoyed his company, you know. I went went shoplifting with him and uh, spent all sorts of time with him and enjoyed his company. But anyway, he was committing offences on bail, which I recorded. And at the end of the operation, he was also arrested. Now, when he was in police custody, he ended up being on minute-to-minute watch, suicide watch. Right. Because from his perspective what I did to him was the final straw. He was somebody who was using heroin to self-medicate for childhood trauma, like the majority of people are. Um, And he thought that I was his one friend in the world, the one person he could speak to. Now, as an undercover cop, I, I quite happily regularly became that one person that people could talk to and confide in because that's how I emotionally manipulated people. Um, but, you know, there, there's an extreme example of, of just the, the level of how much that costs, you know. and Did you it, realize it, made,
1: it at the time? When did it begin to dawn on you? How, how soon into your undercover well, career did you begin to think, wow, this I, is
0: not... When I started working undercover, I, I had a classic stigmatized view of problematic drug consumers. I just looked down on them as people who'd made the wrong decision, didn't have the willpower to get themselves out of it. You know, really, really harsh view, (laughs) judgmental view. And of course, the more I talk to people, I I, I call it now weaponizing empathy, because, you know, I used my empathy to to, to manipulate these people. And, you know, I I would hear story after story after story, every single person had one, you know, that had a a woman in uh, Northampton who said to me, um, yeah, I can can stop taking heroin. In fact, I do sometimes. I give myself a tolerance break of about two to three weeks. She said, but the trouble is when I stop taking heroin, I become suicidal because I remember the feeling of my uncle's fingernails as he sexually abused me as a child. So for her, like so many people, taking heroin was a, a very pragmatic response to emotional pain, very pragmatic.
1: What do you remember thinking or feeling in that moment when she shared that with you? Did it sink in?
0: Oh, it filled me with horror, to be honest. And it, and it, it just made me understand that things were not as I'd, as, as I'd, when it was not as pre-con- my preconceived thoughts, you know, I was learning a lot rapidly amongst those people, but the trouble is you see, I was resistant to what I was learning because I had such a singular drive. You know, I was, I was, I was, out to get people
1: talk about the the culture at the police station because i mean who could you confide your new found thoughts and feelings with because i imagine um the the police station wasn't a touchy-feely place where change would be welcomed
0: no no well exactly well actually it, it was it was worse than that because as because of the, the nature of the undercover work I was doing I was cocooned from normal policing um, and any of the people that was my support staff were, were given lawful orders not to even ask me my real name so I was giving the same pseudonym to my colleagues as I was to the to the people on the streets so I, I, had, I, I had one cover officer who was who was my support person Um but they were they were not generally very thoughtful either to be honest so and the reason I was cocooned from normal policing is because of the threat of corruption, because, you know, and that is something I came face to face with on, on several occasions, you know, but drug, it's another aspect of drug policy is that it makes corruption inevitable and impossible to defend against. Because, which the, made the, me
1: the, all, because the criminal gangs have so much money to buy police off.
0: Yeah, exactly. You know, you know the, the only thing that can pay for the le- that level of corruption is the money from the illicit drug market. only thing and the problem is that the mechanism of trying to police drugs in prohibition actually makes that corruption more likely over time and and just very quickly uh, to give you an example say a say police in a city have a huge success against the sort of kingpin or gang who controls a quarter of the city's supply then the gang which is most likely to take up that opportunity, or most likely to be able to take up that opportunity, is a gang that controls another quarter of the city, which means that the policing mechanism creates monopolies over time. And if someone increases their share of the market, that means they're richer. And if they're richer, they've got more money to invest in corruption. So the mechanism of policing drugs increases corruption over time. And you can see this pan out at every single level around the world, street level, regional, national, international, Uh, You know, look at Mexico. There used to be 20 cartels. Now there are only three. And each one of those three has got a bigger GDP than many West African countries.
1: One of the things that you talked about is the brutality, the escalation in brutality that the gangs adopt as cops get better at catching criminals. Talk about how criminals adapt.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, the first time that I did that kind of work, it was dead easy. It was really easy because the people, the dealers, didn't see it coming. In 1993, it was entirely new tactic. Now, in the United States, we've been doing this, these kind of this kind of undercore work for a lot longer than we have,
1: and turning them into shitty sitcoms.
0: Well, well, yeah, absolutely, yeah, absolutely, yeah. But, but I mean, if, for fans of The Wire, you, there has never been a more accurate portrayal of the reality.
1: The best show of, ever the best show ever.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm I'm friends with Neil Franklin, uh, obviously from, from leap in the USA. And he was on the murder squad in in Baltimore. And he says, he knows all the characters from that show. He, He says it's more of a documentary, but yeah, it is, it is the best show ever, but it's accurate. That's, that's the thing. And it plays out like that all over the world that, you know, the police are really good at catching drug dealers. They are. They're brilliant at it all over the world. They're probably especially good at it in the United States, but that's part of the problem because police never reduce the size of the market. Right. But they do change the shape of it. How can you not change the shape of that market with such aggressive activity, you know? And in any unregulated market, you get monopolies and, and, and disputes, but the unregulated market of illicit drugs is ruthless. It's brutal, but it's made brutal because of the presence like people like me. And I saw year after year the brutality that grew. I did one operation where I, I felt in imminent danger every single day for seven months. Every day, I was stripped naked at gunpoint. One day, um, and I, I to this day I don't know if they really did suspect me of being a cop with a wire, or whether they were just reminding me who was boss. Because you know this, this you get a Darwinian situation on the streets where the police activity means. That the most brutal and ruthless survive so you're constantly creating this situation where where the most violent gangs or rather the people who are most willing to be violent survive and the reason for that is that the most important tool in the police's box is the use of informants now most informants give information to the police because they've been caught themselves now that informant will wait in a police cell And they'll think, oh, God, I can't face this this long prison sentence. I can't. I'm going to have to give them some information so I get a shorter sentence. I'm going to have to. So that informant is thinking, who can I give them information on that won't spend three days torturing me to death if they find out? Who's the low-hanging fruit I can give the police so I get a reduced sentence? And that dynamic, that thinking process, is what drives the violence in the streets because those dealers out there know that if they can be the most terrifying, they're the ones who don't get grasped up.
1: Talk about some of the tactics that, that gangs began adopting to put fear into people and to dissuade people from informing on them.
0: Well, as an infamous gang... Um, very infamous here, uh, called the Burger Bar Boys. Now, I remember someone saying to me that that's the most British name ever for a for a drug dealing gang, <laughs> but it was true. But they're but they're a famous gang from from Birmingham. That their their famous uh, rivals are the Johnson Crew. And anyway, the Burger Bar Boys, sweet name, but not very sweet boys. Yeah. Are they rougher uh, than
1: the Dandy Puffs? I, I
0: I would say so. I would say okay. so. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, they do the normal kind of stuff that gangs do, you know, kidnappings, maimings, all of that kind of stuff. Shootings, you know, they famously killed two women with with, uh, machine guns. Um, Two women called Letitia Shakespeare and Charmaine Harris. I always like to mention the remember the victims because too often we just talk about the gangs. But anyway, um, but they did all that kind of stuff, but they also used sexual violence. They use gang rape as part of their reputation building just to make them more terrifying. Um, and, and they, that was the they guy. would they
1: would go after if somebody informed on them they would go after the female relatives or loved ones
0: that's right that's right and that they used that kind of punishment tactic for all sorts of things and, and they were genuinely they were genuinely terrifying um, and, and they you know this managed to take it up to the to the next level um, sorry I've lost the thread now thinking about thinking about uh, those you
1: know, people yeah, we were talking about the uh, uh, escalation in intimidation to uh, dissuade people from informing on them. The tactics that the gangs, how they would up the ante. Yeah,
0: I mean, this is this is never ending, really. Um, like 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 it is in the wire, but, but it plays out on streets right across the world. It plays out in the Philippines, where where police are more brutal. There is always at least an equal pushback from the streets, always. So Duterte in in the Philippines might might declare that he's winning the war on drugs, but he's actually just making the streets more dangerous for his ordinary citizens, because and it, it even plays out where there is a get-tough law, you know, where, and you have so many examples of this in the United States, like your three strikes, that kind of thing, where you have a bigger threat for longer prison sentences and you're more likely to be sent to prison. All that does is ramp up the, the violence on the streets, because if the perception is that there is a greater risk of being caught or longer imprisonment, then people will take greater risk to avoid capture, and they will be more brutal to intimidate witnesses or potential, potential informants. This is a very basic truth of drugs policing, very basic it's the same everywhere, which which explains you know why you've got such a level of violence in the states because you've you've got only got five percent of the world's population, but a quarter of the prison population, and that's all down to the war it's, on drugs.
1: It's astounding. It's it is. A, we are in a state of insanity, uh, and you know I certainly have opinions on drugs as somebody who's been sober for a while and knows what it's like to be under the grip of. Of drugs and the hopelessness of it. But I am uh, for legalization. I I, the criminalizing of it. How do we regulate it? Good fucking question. I don't know. Um, But I think we have to face the cold hard fact that, look, people who are going to do drugs. Compulsively. Are going to ruin their lives one way or another. So why don't we at least get out of the way and and provide care where we can without them, you know, draining the the national budget, which it wouldn't. But that's going to be one of the arguments. We can't afford that. Well, we can afford to what? invade every country we want at at will. But the. The. America and I, and I think a lot of the Western world has this issue with well we can't condone it. Well, you're not our fucking parents, you know. I'm an adult. If I want to do heroin, let me do heroin. And let me if I'm going to die, let me die. If I'm going to learn some something from it and ask for help, let let me do that. Um, I'm I'm on the same page as you, but there's a part of me. When I say that, that I, I still think to myself, that's fucking crazy. What are you saying? Did it take you a while to get to the point where you are? And Don't let me put words in your mouth about, um, you know, getting rid of prohibition and legalizing things. What in your mind, what is the best scenario for legislation and support?
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, the the answers are are actually already there. That they, they are there and they're quite clear. I mean, you asked me how long it took me. It took me a long time. I was a bit slow on this. You know, it, it, I was resistant to the evidence before my eyes um, for for a long time. But that's because I was so wrapped up in in the in the you know in covert policing and you know that the. the that the fight, I was so wrapped up in the jingoism and the fight for so long, I was resistant to the fairly obvious conclusions when you look at it. But, you know, the, one of the best ways of, of, of breaking this down is to look at policy comparison, yeah? There's a very good piece of history uh, which shows the best way to deal with particularly heroin, because you mentioned heroin. So there's only one nation on earth was rich, was remained rich after world war ii and that's the usa which made the usa a true superpower which gave them incredible dominance in terms of policy making and in respect of drug policy that meant that for the next 20 well the next 15 20 years they made sure the rest of the world followed the united states way of doing things that's why we have international drug prohibition The the last resistance to that was something called the British system, the British way of doing things. So in Britain, through the 1920s, 30s, all the way to the end of the 1960s, if you had a problem with heroin, you were prescribed heroin by a doctor. You would go to the doctor and you would be treated as a health issue and you would be given heroin as much as the heroin as you needed. Very simple, very simple health approach. Now, the United States obviously banned heroin in 1914 but the Harrison Act was very aggressive at criminalising it and the people who used it. So as a result of the US policy, you measured your heroin consumers in the hundreds of thousands, right from the 20s right through to the 60s, and you had a huge problem with the associated crime and organised crime. In Britain, we measured our heroin consumers in the hundreds, from the 1920s right till the end of the 1960s, in the hundreds. Really? At the time, Yeah in the hundreds, because we didn't have any organized control of of it at all. It was completely controlled by, by medically, completely, because there was no incentive to find new customers at all. So at the point that the British system ended, from United States pressure, we had 1,046 heroin consumers in the UK, 1,046. And the number was falling because they were being given some help. 20 years later...
1: We have 300,000. So they, yeah, it, it does not surprise me. So what type of health help was being given to them back then? In addition to being given heroin, that to me is what seems so complicated is how do you help somebody while you're giving them the very thing that's distracting them from getting the help that they need?
0: Well, oh, there wasn't a huge amount of investment into the help and treatment. You know, nowadays we have this obsession with, um, you know, the, the recovery industry, the kind of counselling and help that you can get. Now, of course, those things are important. But the starting point is harm reduction. Because if, as soon as, that, as soon as heroin was banned in the UK, then anyone who might have a problem with it was then pushed into the exploitation of organised crime. And organized crime then pressure people to find new customers because they want an expanded market. And the people who use heroin then suddenly find themselves as being part of organized crime and dealing heroin to other people. This is a, a very simple structure that's set up. If you remove that system and treat it com- with, with the starting and ending point of harm reduction, then any individual who decides that they want help can be given that help. And, of course, you can afford it because... Enforcement of drugs is substantially more expensive than treating it as a health issue, substantially more. It's absolute fortune. And there is lots of studies to show that.
1: And, and, and that's to not even factor in the emotional damage of you know, parents going away to prison for 20 years and a child growing up with, without a parent with that emotional scar, the things exactly. they see, their, their front door being kicked in.
0: Exactly, and that trauma that you're referring to—the the, the arrest, the, the taking away of a parent from a child, the prison sentences—that is sealing in the trauma for the next generation of problematic drug consumption. It's it's building it into the whole system. It's it, it's the most short-sighted and brutal policy. It it, it really is.
1: So, do you see uh, a world where a heroin is dispensed by the government with? regulations, and people are also given pamphlets to say, hey, if you want to stop doing this, you know, if you get tired of this, you know, come see us on Monday at 3 o'clock.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, that's exactly what happens in Switzerland. Now, in 1994, Switzerland used British evidence, the evidence that, from, from our country, to inform their policy. And now, ever since 1994, Switzerland has prescribed heroin to any problematic consumer who, who needs that heroin. As a result of that, they have virtually no drug deaths. They have a tiny heroin-consuming population, and they reduce their burglary rate by fifty percent. So all of the evidence is—it's not just. This is not small numbers. This is really dramatic evidence of the efficacy of their policy. Now it's difficult to sell this sometimes to Americans because you you have you have two drug problems. You don't just have one heroin problem. You've got two because you've had the the, the overprescribing of of medical.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, uh, opioids like uh, oxycodone and Oxycontin uh, and things like that, as well as your parallel street heroin market, which has had it the same problems as everybody else. So you've got more problems than anyone else. I understand that. But it still comes down to the fact that if you are problematically using opioids, and there are at least 20 studies, academic studies that I'm aware of that come up with the same kind of figures. If you are problematically using um, opioids, you are self-medicating for some kind of childhood trauma, whether it's neglect, physical or sexual abuse, to at least two-thirds of that population. And the rest of that third, there's a very good chance that you've got some kind of uh, uh, autism or other um, latent mental health difficulties. So, you know, when we, when we see someone struggling with heroin or other opioids, we, need really, we really need to be asking, what has happened to you? What has happened to you? And how can we help you? And, you know, this, this moralising, judgmental approach is literally ripping our society apart and lining the pockets of the, most, of the darkest elements in our communities.
1: Other than that, it's going great. <laughs>
0: yeah, other than that, it's going great. But, you, I mean, we're only talking about heroin, though, aren't we? And you asked me about my view. Well, when I went into the police, I didn't care about people's liberty. I thought about, you know, I thought about security. I, I didn't care about these, you know. John John Stuart Mill mean, not, meant nothing to me. But, you know, when I realised the total carnage that's been caused by our drug policy, then I started taking a great interest in, in the causes. And the causes really are that the state interfering with people's liberty. And people should be supported in their choices with, with harm reduction in mind rather than persecuted for them. And like you said, if you want to take heroin, like, like the great Carl Hart said recently, who who bravely went on on, on TV and, and said, yeah, I, I do use heroin. You know, don't, don't judge me for it. You know, I, I admire him for his honesty. Now, I I don't know how that again. I don't know how that would pan out in regulatory terms because the, my organization's position, the Law Enforcement Action Partnership, is that heroin should be regulated in a medical fashion, like they do in Switzerland. But I suppose liberty is more easily talked about with the other drugs, isn't it? Now, if you consider MDMA, for example, there's a huge amount of dishonesty going on here. You've got the enormous growth of um, uh, electronic music, dance music, and it's a wonderful thing because it's incre- it's therapy. It's an it's an incredible communal thing. You know, people are getting in a field together and dancing to repetitive beats. You know, we've been doing that since before we could talk you know it's good for us but the drug that's really fueled that both the industry and and people's desire to do it is mdma so why can't we talk about the positive aspects of mdma and and why can't we regulate that that behavior so that people who want to dance in a field can get a a drug that's got no adulterants in it so that we can make sure that the harm is reduced you know we, we don't want to be just stuck on talking about heroin there are positive aspects to drug consumption Cool, are.
1: yeah I, I think it's it gets complicated with with the drugs that um, that have long term effects on on the brain um, I smoked a lot of pot in my day and I'm sure some of my struggles with memory are related to that probably also related to all the meds that I take and my age but um, I know that excessive pot smoking, uh, can exacerbate depression. I know that excessive, uh, MDMA use can exacerbate depression, uh, as well as, you know, meth and a lot of other drugs. So it's such a mixed bag. And, and I think we have to stop thinking in terms of black and white, that it's, you know, we either can't have it or it has to be, you know, every man for himself and every, everything is, uh, is a go. I don't know what that looks like, but, I, I love that you have started the conversation and that you are putting so much effort into trying to right the wrongs that you that you are a, a part of. It's a really it's a really beautiful thing.
0: Well, that's very kind to say, but I, I mean, I, I feel duty bound because and essentially I'm still just trying to fight organized crime. I put so much energy and effort into doing so, but I caused so much harm in those efforts. I feel duty-bound to the truth, to start with, um, because there's so much dishonesty uh, f- around drug policy, particularly from from police voices. Um, but also, you know, I, I, I'm still trying to fight organised crime and I'm just trying to right the, some of the wrongs that I've done. And I'm, I'm also, I'm diagnosed with uh, chronic PTSD and part of my PTSD uh, is moral injury. Now, you, you're probably aware moral injury is something that was diagnosed in Vietnam veterans coming back from from that war because they, they were suffering from the normal kind of PTSD causes, you know, um, near-death experiences, but also the, this profound sense of guilt because they didn't feel like they were fighting a just war. And, and I have the same thing, you know, after many sessions with psych- psychiatric nurses and two psychiatrists and therapists and various people. And I understand much better that my feelings of intense guilt is because of the harm that I've caused to so many individuals. And and, and I suppose you could say that I'm another casualty of the war on drugs. And, you know, it's interesting that I speak to, you know, as part of the organisation, as part of LEAP, I speak to cops all over the world from Vietnam, South Africa, Australia, obviously lots in the USA, and I'm not alone. You know, we're, we're fighting a war. If we fight a war, we should expect casualties, and there, a lot of those casualties are of the mental health sort. And so we need, to be, we need to become more aware of just how much we are causing both to those people that we cause harm to, the vulnerable people that we cast aside or we throw in prison, but also to the cops who are trying to fight this, because the cops were stitched up with this with this policy. They're fighting a war that can't be won. They're, they're, they're trying to help communities and they're causing harm. And this is not going to end well. Um, you know, I, I, I see connections and parallels with the Black Lives Matter movement, not least of which because uh, white people are not persecuted by these laws to the same degree. They're not. The statistics are very clear on that. But also, if if you have a warlike mentality, then somebody has to be the target. And that's why the aggression in policing that is caused by drug policy plays out in this way. So when people are waving Black Lives Matter banners and they are calling for less police brutality, they need to be thinking about the causes, and the causes are drug policy. They, they genuinely. If you look at um, statistics in Colorado when they first regulated cannabis there, th- there was a, st- a statistic I've seen that police interaction with young people went down by ninety percent. Ninety percent. Now it might be the same percentage of of, of um, racial disparity in there, but that's ninety percent less contact that can go wrong. That's ninety percent of people being be, that's people being policed less. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about the Black Lives Matter movement and the damage that that's causing to our communities, we're talking about drug policy. That's what we need to tackle.
1: Talk about your own path emotionally, starting with doing this work. You know, One of the things you said in an article is that you really got off on being deceptive, the art of it. Talk about that. Let's put the, the, the moral part of it aside. Let's just talk about the art of deception. And
0: Yes, yes, certainly. I mean, when I, when I started in the police at the age of 19, I was, I was really not very good at it at all. I didn't realize how young I was. I didn't realize how naive I was. I didn't deal with, deal with conflict very well at all. Um, and, I, and I almost got lost my job a few times. I just about survived my probationary period. Um, but when I but two years after that, when I got into undercover work, I found that there was something that perhaps suited my personality a bit better than being in uniform. And, and that is that, you know, I, I loved the intellectual exercise of maintaining that lie and being able to manipulate everyone around me. And I loved the times, certainly when I was younger, In the early, in the first few years, I loved those times when it became difficult, you know, when I felt really challenged. And, you know, there was times like, you know, I'd open a door and then someone put a samurai sword to my throat. And I genuinely thought, you know, this this could be it, I could be dead. But in those moments of extreme adrenaline, I found that I had an advantage. And that is that I had the sensation that time was slowing down. That I, I had all the time in the world to think what to do next, and that's a very powerful feeling. You know, I suppose it's for, for people that because we all respond slightly different to, a, to different situations, and particularly adrenaline. Perhaps that's what adrenaline junkies are after—that feeling of suits so that serene feeling. It's, it's
1: hyper presence. It, it it is an amazing feeling. I have experienced the same thing as as well. I oftentimes feel more uh, confident in the midst of you know earthquake chaos than i do on a day where i have to go to the to the bank and take somebody to the airport
0: yeah exactly exactly that and it it just having that sensation of all the time in the world to think it through and just calmly do it um even forcing oneself to appear more nervous if 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 need be you know it, it was an incredible sensation and then of course. A few of those instances, then I'm I'm coming away from those those situations thinking, wow, okay, so I'm one of those people who can cope with this, you know, and that and that boosted my ego, you know, as a young man. I thought, great, you know, I've got a superpower, I'm good at this. And then of course, your peers, uh my peers admired me and thought, wow, you know, this is this is the guy who can who can do this. And then of course then, You're talking about your police
1: peers. I assume people in your social circles outside of work didn't know you were undercover or did they?
0: No, no, I couldn't talk to anybody about this. And it was made very clear to me I couldn't. So I was quite isolated, really. And even my peers, there's only a few of them, you know, the people who who was it who within the, the special operations unit that, um, you know, the people who did similar kind of work or prepared it or did the backup for it. Yeah so I got admired and and because of that then I had the more dangerous jobs it was always me that did them um and it sort of escalated in that regard but yeah I I really really enjoyed it I thrived on that intellectual exercise and you know we we all thrive on self development don't we we uh we can develop our own obsessions with improving getting better at what we do and and so I had that and it was it was quite extreme that I just wanted to get better and better at it. And I became obsessed with, you know, reading people's body language, sort of opening myself up to my own perceptions, if you, if you, if you get my meaning. And You'd be more and, specific
1: about that if you could.
0: Well, there was, um, for, for long-term operations, if, if, I, I found that if I relaxed into it, into those threatening situations and just allowed myself to pick up everything, then I became much more acutely aware of all those tiny um, nonverbal cues, the nonverbal communications. So, for example, so many instances where, where I, it was almost like following a narrative that would happen in a split second. So, um, for example, I did an operation once where I'd made a big, big mistake in making myself out to be a connoisseur of amphetamines. Which I'm not. <laughs> I'm really not. Oh. I wasn't then, and I'm not now. So, but the trouble is, this guy, this main gangster who was running this tea, this this whole gang of like car thieves, burglars, he, he came to me one day and he says, "Hey, you got a present for you." He says, "I bet you've never had anything like this." And he picked, he held up this little uh, see through like sealy bag with some toxic looking pink goo in it. And I opened up this bag and it smelt like the urine from a glue sniffing cat. It it, it smelled utterly vile. And I thought, oh no, this is really high strength base amphetamine, amphetamine sulfate. So he says, go on then. And he must have picked up on that momentary, momentary bit of reticence on my face. But I picked up him picking that up on his face. And so I realized that I instantly had to show enthusiasm and throw water on that fire of suspicion. And all of that is in a split second to, to make that decision that I realized that I was in danger if I didn't show some enthusiasm wow. and take that. So I put my finger in and scooped it up and put it, put some in my mouth and almost felt the mouth also foaming in, in, in my mouth as I did it.
1: Oh, you were sort awake of... for three days.
0: I, I, well, I, yeah, I, I was, yeah. I, I, I i had to be driven home i was i was a complete mess it was horrible to be honest because i had no tolerance and whereas i knew it wasn't going to do do me a huge amount of harm i'd had much too big a dose and yeah i went home drank eight cans of lager thinking that would take the edge off no nothing at all nothing at all i didn't sleep for three nights mind you my house has never been so tidy (laughs)
1: were there were there drugs that you had to consume as a part of your cover other than that that uh you know did you ever have to inject heroin as a part of your cover
0: no thankfully thankfully not um heroin I would have found really scary I I didn't have to do crack either I wouldn't have found that too scary um no just amphetamine cannabis a few times uh, but that's just cannabis isn't it um No not not really. I had to I, I I got out of a situation once by pretending to inject heroin. Um I'd obviously practiced practiced how to cook up and I was sat in a car for this particular operation I was driving this car. Mm-hmm. And um the 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 guy who had introduced me to to the dealer was sat in the front passenger seat. The dealer had got in the back. And I knew I I picked up on some signals that he was getting really suspicious of me. So I got my spoon out, put a little bit in put the citric in, put the water from my little bottle, cooked it up with a lighter, Mate watched it bubble, threw the filter in, sucked it up into the syringe, dropped my trousers as if to go into my groin, mm-hmm. uh, because, because many long-term injectors will just go into the same spot in the groin because it doesn't heal up properly. Dropped my trousers, went to go into my groin and injected it into the car seat. And uh, suspicion, suspicion over.
1: Hmm. So when did things begin to to turn for you uh emotionally we've talked about kind of your moral compass and your view changing well, on the drug war but when did when did PTSD start creeping into it because i imagine it was there before you left the force
0: yeah, I mean, it's, it's really hard to trace back when it started. And I suspect it started before I finished doing the work because when I, when I was working on the Burger Bar Boys, I, I was really struggling. And then when I finished it, I felt for a whole month afterwards, I felt like I was never truly awake. Um, but I didn't, things, you know, I, I was, I, I look back on that egotistical young man you know, the person who was having the big confidence boost and really full of myself at how good I was at all this stuff. And I had no idea that I was causing harm to myself. No one ever told me. And it crept up on me. It crept up on me very, very slowly. So about maybe about three years after I stopped the work was when the symptoms really got terrifying. And it had been creeping up over that time. And over that time, I was increasing the alcohol I was drinking. So I was pushing down the symptoms or masking the symptoms by drinking alcohol. Now, anyone out there who understands, who's experienced PTSD, you know, it's a, there's a very common, as you probably know, there's a very common relationship between alcohol and PTSD because it, it really does dampen the symptoms. It does. You know, it helps you sleep and it dampens the symptoms. So I wasn't accepting or seeing what was going on, but then, and I was doing conventional detective work by this time. Uh, and just my world just felt like it was collapsing. I wasn't functioning right. I was, couldn't concentrate, couldn't do the work. And a lot of what I was feeling was the profound guilt because I decided to stay in the police because I, I, part of me wanted to leave because I felt like I was working for the enemy. It, it felt so bad. You know, I'd, I'd done such a vault fast, such a such a change of mind. I was so sure the war on drugs was, was the evil that it is uh, that I, you know, I, I thought, should I leave? What should I do? But I thought, no, I'll try and change things from the inside. And of course, <laughs> that's very ambitious indeed. Oh, wow. Because, because it's, a, it's, you know, it's not policy level. Policing isn't policy level. It's a disciplined organization and cops do as are told. And so I, I just found myself struggling with, not believing ethically in what I was doing and really struggling with everything. And, yeah, just my world just felt like it fell apart, really. And um, I continued to get worse. I left. I resigned in 2011. I got no support, no understanding whatsoever from the organisation. None at all. Um, no one even mentioned PTSD. No one – you would expect that some manager somewhere would look at my record and realise some of the things that I've done. But of course, the covert policing side of the my management didn't talk to the <laughs> to the other side of the management, to the to the to the normal policing management. And they just wanted rid of me because I was a problem. And that's something that's replicated in police all over the place. You know, it's it's not understood and there's no sympathy. So I wasn't even diagnosed with PTSD until probably I don't know, at least two years after I resigned resigned in 2012 so yeah it was, it was a rough journey really and 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 I've had all the potential treatments and whereas I'm I'm nowhere near as bad you know I can function I can talk to you I can talk about these things now I'm much improved but I still suffer symptoms so if I have stress I can become hypervigilant I can become really depressed um if I'm not careful but you know what help one of the things that helps me keep going is just is, is having that purpose, you know, the fact that I'm still fighting organized crime and and being in the family of the movement, you know, the Law Enforcement Action Partnership, which is growing across the world. We're about to launch have several events across Europe to launch Leap Europe. Um and you know, it, it's it it's good if you've got purpose and you can still fight the good fight. Do the right thing. It's a it's a very good balm to to a condition such as I've got. Well,
1: I think that's a great note to to end on, uh, Neil. Where can uh, people find you and your your books? Uh, the, the one book is Good Comp, Bad War, and the other one is the War on Drugs. What is it called?
0: The second one is called Drug Wars. Drug Wars. Um, and it's a it's a a study to, through first person accounts. So exposes some of the corruption um and and the disaster of current policy um yeah but you you can find my, uh, my organization in the united states we are the law enforcement action partnership you can find the website or on twitter it's at police for reform in europe we are on twitter or other social media accounts at uk leap or at europe leap and we've got chapters in france germany scandinavia all, all over the place australia Uh, As for for my books, um, I I think you can get them in the United States, and I've certainly spoken to lots of people who've read it there. So, yeah, there's good cop, bad war or drug wars. Um, But more than the books, there's something I would love your listeners to to use, if you don't mind. Um, People, when I speak to a lot of people, because I speak to people all over the world, and when people become convinced, they say, okay, you've convinced me, what can I do? What can I do to be part of this social movement for change? And, of course, you know, you can... You can host events for Leap, you can uh, contact your politicians, because, you know, if you write to your politicians, they will take notice if you keep doing it, they will. Mm-hmm. But Anyone's Child, which is a partner organisation of ours, together with Anyone's Child, UK Leap have made this um, video and this video is, is quite cheeky. I don't know if you use that word cheeky. It's mischievous. It's, yes. it's
1: mischievous. We we yes. know we know of the word cheeky. We don't use it, but <laughs> it, it's, we know it's of mis- it.
0: Because the police at the moment control the narrative in drug policy because they're constantly putting out in press releases or social media the theoretical successes that they have. You know, the, they, they show pictures of people's doors being smashed in, the rows of mugshots of the gangs being arrested, or they show the seizures of the drugs that they've caught, you know, drugs on the table, dope on the table, as they say in the cool. wire, you know, and they show this on social media all of the time. So we've created the, a response for people to use as a t- tool for this. And it's, and if you wouldn't mind sharing it if, if, when you, in your, uh, you know, wherever you can share it alongside this podcast. We'll
1: put we'll put this and all the, all the links in our show notes. I'll have you send, send me those and I'll just copy and paste all of it, but go ahead. Great.
0: It's basically um, a very short social media video which challenges that narrative and explains to the public the reality of the impact of those drug seizures. So it can be used time and time again. And, you know, in any social justice movement, message discipline and repetition is really important. So this is a way of people using message discipline, repetition. Just keep posting this video wherever you see police social media accounts. Do it politely. Very polite. The more politely, and ask the police officers posting in their social media to, to watch it and comment, and it, it will have impact. And it is having impact around the world. It's been subtitled with uh, different languages around the world. We've got Spanish, French, German, even Mongolian, and it's, it's genuinely having impact because we're having police officers contact us to, to join to join the movement as a result of this, and that's the help of people out there. So. So it's a tool for people to use. Thank you very much. Great,
1: and uh, and what is your personal Twitter account?
0: My personal Twitter account. Uh, this sounds a bit daft because I, I did this before I realised I would ever have a public profile. But it's it's at woodsy zero. So at w u d z w e zero.
1: Okay, Neil. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you very much for inviting me to come and talk to you. It's been good meeting you.
1: Such. Important work that he is doing. Our our legal system and around the world is so fucked up when it comes to how we treat drugs and drug addicts. This episode is sponsored by the ASPCA, Pet Health Insurance Program. Uh, You guys know how much uh, my dog Gracie means to me. Now, imagine this. Imagine that you have a Gracie in your life and you're at the vet's office and... uh, All of a sudden, you get a bill for a couple of grand. Well, if you had pet insurance, your pet could be covered for accidents or illnesses, and that's why you should check out ASPCA Pet Health Insurance. The ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program offers customizable accident and illness plans, making it easier for pet parents like you to help your pet get the care they may need. The ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program has been around for over 18 years, and they've helped more than 600,000 pets during that time. They allow you to customize your plan, helping ensure that your pet's plan is as unique as they are, because vet bills can really add up, especially when you're least expecting it. It's simple. Use their app to submit a claim, and you'll receive reimbursement for eligible vet bills directly into your bank account. To explore coverage, Visit ASPCA pet dot com slash mental. That's ASPCA pet dot com slash mental. Again, that's ASPCA pet dot com slash mental. This is a paid advertisement. Insurance is underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produced by PTZ Insurance Agency Limited. The ASPCA is not an insurer and is not engaged in the business of insurance. This episode is sponsored by Cerebral. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online, you'll experience the all-new Cerebral Way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. And judgment-free is definitely how I would describe uh, the sessions that I've had with my cerebral therapist. Her name is Megan. She is thoughtful. She is empathetic, and, uh, and she's knowledgeable, and she's been helping me clarify baby steps I can take to uh, help achieve the professional goals that I uh, am trying to set. Um, I'm a big fan. All cerebral clinicians are vetted, credentialed, and trained to help you feel better. They stay up to date on the latest studies and breakthroughs so they can provide quality care that's based on rigorous research. To get started on your path towards better mental health, Cerebral is giving our listeners 15% off the first month of online therapy, medication, or both. Get started at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use the code MENTAL. That's Cerebral, dot com slash podcast and then use the code MENTAL. To get 15% off your first month. Make 2024 your best year yet. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. See site for details. Anyways, let's, let's get to some surveys. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by <laughs> Bloopity Bloppity Beep Boop Bramp Balangarang Bippity pfft. I'm just fucking with you now. You can stop reading anytime now. I wonder if that's her legal name. She asked, "How did you know that this podcast was your calling?" And do you ever worry you will lose interest or burn out from doing the podcast? Those are great questions, and I don't know uh, about knowing that it was my calling. I just felt it, and it it coincided. I started doing the podcast in 2011 because I just I felt like there needed to be conversations around mental health that weren't academic or you know somebody talking down to somebody telling them what they needed to do. I just felt like there was comfort and solidarity needed because when I was at my my worst, I felt so alone. I thought nobody felt like I did and I felt hopeless. And I was thinking about suicide all the time. And so I thought, you know, I'm going to I'm going to create a podcast that will kind of be what I wished I had had when I was in that place and never imagining that I would, you know, have it become my job. Um, and I was in the last six months of hosting the TV show that I was doing at the time, um, which was called uh, Dinner and a Movie. And I didn't know that the end was, was near for the podcast. And uh, I was also still doing stand-up comedy, touring, doing that. And i I just uh could feel that that I had the passion for doing this podcast more than the other things I had no desire to do more t v no desire to go on the road and do stand up and um I just kind of felt like the universe was opening a door for me, and um I was fortunate in that my wife at the time was working so you know there was a gap of a couple of years where i was not able to support myself doing the podcast but um you know i asked for people to chip in where they could and then i started getting sponsors and um it just kind of confirmed in me that it's where i'm supposed to be and i and i still feel that way and i do sometimes worry that that i'll get burned out but it's also why i take vacations um One of the things I've learned in therapy and my support groups is to really pay attention to my internal battery and to not let it get drained. Um, So that's why I take time off in the winter and time off in the summer and run best of episodes. But thank you for that question. This is uh, from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a demigirl who uh, uh, refers to themselves as bro-tato. And uh, for those who don't know, uh, demigirl the definition is a gender identity term someone uh, assigned female at birth uh, doesn't identify with being a woman socially or mentally. I think I read that correctly. I had to, I had to google it because I thought I knew what it was but I wasn't I wasn't really sure. Uh, they identify as gay they're in their 20s Let's see what kind of environment. They were raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Uh, I have implicit memories of childhood sexual abuse, but no explicit memories, which, by the way, can be very common, very frustratingly common. Uh, They've never been physically abused. Uh, They have been emotionally abused, uh, and then qualify that they're not sure and then the first thing is I was in an emotionally abusive relationship it's amazing how difficult it is for us to give weight to what happened to us Um, they write I was in an emotionally abusive friendship when I was a freshman in high school I was 14 and there was this junior who was part of my friend group who would routinely belittle me I was wired to want to please people at this point in my life so I let her walk all over me at one point I apologized to her after a falling out in which she told me I would be better off dead. I didn't cut her off until a year later. She made me so much more self-conscious about speaking when I already had anxiety and low self-esteem. I was insecure before we were friends. I was a ghost afterwards. Any positive experiences with the abusers? No, she was an asshole. Darkest thoughts. I think about killing men a lot. I think about hurting myself. Darkest secrets. When I was in middle school, my best friend told me she had been raped. I didn't believe her. She lied about a lot of sexual things, but I should have believed her anyway. I should have said something to someone. I should have been there for her. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Transformation porn where someone gets turned into a penis during sex, turns me all the way on. I like imagining my whole body being a vessel for pleasure. I also fantasize about being a sex slave, but I hate doing that because sex traffic, trafficking isn't a fantasy. It just turns me on, though. I really like the idea of being used for sex in a large fantasy species like orcs or centaurs just going to town on me. Honestly, I hate centaurs because they have two rib cages and a neck pelvis. But also, how sexy are centaurs? Extremely. Most of my fantasies are based around men, but I would literally never have sex with a man. I'm a lesbian thoroughly. In reality, vaginal penetration is very painful, but in fantasy, it feels great. I feel like this is way too much information. It is not too much information. It was very uh, interesting and illuminating. And, and uh, thank you for the, the vulnerability of sharing all of that. You know, I think so many of us feel like our sexual fantasies or turn ons are wrong or weird or bad, and yours are not. Not at all. You sound like a really, really sweet person. What, if anything, do you wish for a girlfriend? Have you shared these things with others? Hell no. I mean, not the sex one. It's just not anyone's business. I told my mom I thought I might have been sexually abused as a child. She responded by saying her and my dad never left me alone. But every kid is alone sometimes. Parents aren't robots. Boy, your mom sounds pretty fucking shut down. How do you feel after writing these things down? horny after writing about my sexual fantasies, then extremely not horny after writing about my mom. Thank you for that. I appreciate that. This is from the love survey filled out by Krev or Kiev? Krev. And they write, I love sleeping in on a Sunday, especially when it's softly raining outside. I love the comfort of knowing I can stay in bed as long as I want without feeling guilty. My partner and I usually decide to get up at the same time, and we often end up making a slow and hearty breakfast of eggs, bacon, extra buttery toast with jam, and a big carafe of pour over coffee. There's something so incredibly peaceful about these days. It's as if we are protected by an impenetrable force field of calm and coziness. I love that. And there's something about coffee being poured, whether it's a visual of it or just somebody describing it that's just so so awesome, especially when it's with with a breakfast. This is from the babysitter survey uh filled out by a woman who calls herself uh show me yours. She was raised in a totally chaotic environment. She writes, My mom has been diagnosed with bipolar and both my parents spent time in jail. My mom would beat us and call us cruel names and then use each of us in turn as non-sexual surrogate spouses because no one ever wanted to stay with her stupid ass. Um, she writes, Uh, I was being babysat. Um, and then I was the babysitter, and there were sexual acts. And uh, she elaborates, saying, uh, "Oral rape with ejaculation." Um, did something happen, or did you want something to happen? This was my friend's dad. He was our babysitter while my whore mom, age seventy, age nineteen or so, was out clubbing with these same friends' friends' mom. Stupid bitches! Exclamation point. I assume. Uh, that the experience that she is talking about was when she was being babysat. Uh, If something happened, did you ever tell anyone? I told my mom as soon as I was old enough to talk. I know it caused me to have sex with my sister and other kids until I was 11. Remembering these things, what feelings come up? Rage. Do you feel any damage was done? A ton of damage that has yet to play out fully. If you're a parent, has your experience influenced how you view your children being babysat? I am afraid of becoming a parent. Thank you for sharing that. You um, You know, to anybody who's ever filled out a survey and gone back into the Deep, dark past, and and dredge those things up, and and written about it uh, with honesty and vulnerability. I just I just want to thank you because it helps other people uh, to know that that they're not alone, and that's a really really important thing when when we're struggling with the guilt and shame and confusion of of the past. Sometimes it's all we have. This is from the Love Survey filled out by Hot Mess Express. And they write, I love when my dog looks at me for approval. I love when the AC unit whistles and is overly loud as I always pretend I'm stuck in a frozen tundra. Oh, man, you, you are a glass half full. Uh, I love a long day when it ends in pride and a job well done. I love meeting people with endearing eyes and smiles who can connect with you and remind you of the human condition. I love that one. I love organizing closets. Well, that's a good one. I love helping people in whatever ways I can. I love the value and integrity I place on my friendships. And I love a morning beer, LOL. I like, how, I like how that ends on potential drinking problem. I love sunsets. And I love smoking meth until my front tooth wiggles. And I pull it out by myself and I feel a sense of accomplishment. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by Mia. And, uh, she just has a comment, uh, ring a bell every time someone underestimates the extent of their abuse. I would not be able to afford, uh, my electric bill if I did that. I don't know why my, my, my bell has to be wired. This is a happy moment filled out by chronically ambivalent and, uh, She writes, having your dog lick your tears as you're breaking down. This immediately makes you laugh and gives a bit of relief. Agreed. Agreed. It's so. And you wonder, like, you know, deep down, they're not comforting you. They're just like, hey, man, salt. I like salt. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself, I can't sleep she identifies as bisexual she's in her 20s was raised in a totally chaotic environment she's never been sexually abused but she has experienced a ton of physical abuse and especially emotional abuse she uh, grew up with a mom who shamed body shamed her um, about her weight and shocker her mom had her own body issues Uh, and she had a special needs brother who was uh, violent. Any positive experiences with the abusers? No, I don't like my mom. I feel bad for her because her husband died and she wasted her life at an awful job, but she's a horrible mother. She's great at providing physical means, but she emotionally abandoned me and has ignored every attempt to bridge the gap between us and be honest about my misery with her. I sometimes think my mom is genuinely lucky I was able to hold myself together all by myself and that I never tried to end my life or get into drugs or reckless sex. I don't know how I got through all those years without even any real friends. My brother also can go fuck himself. I feel bad that he never got the help he needed, but I have too many of my own problems to even think about helping someone who is responsible for giving me many of those problems that I still deal with. Younger sibling or not, mentally challenged or not, his suffering will never be my responsibility. Darkest thoughts. I think about being cruel to my boyfriend. Sometimes I wish I could tell him that he fucked with my self-confidence. That Because of him, I feel self-conscious when we have sex. That I don't fucking trust him. That I think he lies to me about asking other girls for nude pictures. That I've snooped through his phone and seen pictures of naked girls that I've never heard of and seen texts where he's asked for photos and was denied. How fucking dare you? Question mark. I want to say and punch him so hard that he can never even think think about another woman again, but I won't say any, I won't do any of those things because I do love them and I don't want to break up. I just want to know why I'm not enough. That is, there is so much important stuff packed into that thing that I just read. And it is amazing the effect an abusive or abandoning parent can have on the people we choose to be our partners. And, you know, that it, it is a state of insanity staying with someone that you think is cheating on you and you're snooping on them. And, I mean, it is... How can you have intimacy in a relationship like that? And yet there's a part of you that you want to stay. And, uh, I think getting some type of support for this to help work through that because that feeling that we're not enough man that doesn't just suddenly appear with us without us doing intense work on ourselves and processing trauma and learning boundaries and self-care and all that other good stuff Darkest secrets i can't think of any right now i just feel like i keep a lot of myself under wraps because nobody around me would really deal with the very negative parts of me And I would say that that's a lie because I found in support groups that that was the very thing that connected me to other people because I was open to helping them deal with the negative parts of themselves, not being a doormat, not being boundaryless, but helping support them and cheer them on and to listen and to champion I'm not allowed to be outraged and angry and yell. Sometimes I feel like I only exist for other people, to help them with their issues and hope I get a sliver of help in return. Sometimes I feel like I'm denu- delusional and I'm much more of an awful person than I think. And that's why I get ignored and abused and disrespected. I don't deserve anything good. I have nothing to offer anyone. And you know, man, that is that is the trauma you know whatever you want to call it the l- love addiction that is its voice because it it speaks in absolutes always never nothing everything that's how i know when it, when mine is is talking to me sexual fantasies most powerful to you i just want to feel entirely wanted i want my boyfriend to be rough I want him to suck and bite on my nipples till I come. I want him to then finger me and eat me out until I come again, and I want him to keep torturing me with his hands and his mouth until I beg for him to let me have his dick. I don't want I don't want to have to wonder if I'm pleasing him. I don't want to have to worry about performing in some way that I'm not for him. I just want him to do whatever he wants with me and tell me exactly what he wants in return and I'll give him it. Sharing this just makes me feel anxious. I'm analyzing myself and worrying that I'm selfish for wanting that. Why should I not have to ask for anything but he does, yada, yada, yada. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I feel miserable pretty much all the time, and the world feels hopeless and pointless. I don't know if anything is worth the effort. Every new thing I try proves this to be true. Uh, And I guess I'd want to say uh, that because it's truly how I feel. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish I wasn't anxious anymore. I wish I didn't worry about everything. I wish I could just enjoy the present. Have you shared these things with others? Yes, it went okay. No one I tell really knows how to help. And that's why I think therapy or a support group would be so great because they would understand. Not everybody in the support group always gets us. But, man, you, you deserve to feel seen and heard and loved and supported. And I think, how can that not help with the anxiety? and the hopelessness. How do you feel after writing these things down? Empty. I hope I don't feel bad all day. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? You're not alone. I feel this way too. It doesn't fix it, but not being alone is always nicer. Thank you for that. That was really bittersweet. And you, you sound like somebody who not only is ripe to be helped, but whose experience and pain could help somebody else. That's the thing that before we get into into support groups, we never imagine that the pain of our past can be of benefit to somebody else as we work our way through it and begin to make sense of it and heal. This is um, another shame and secret survey, and this is filled out by A guy who calls himself drawn away. He identifies as straight. He's in his 30s, was raised in a stable and safe environment. Never been sexually abused. Not sure if he's been physically or emotionally abused. And then here we go. First sentence, I was a skinny, asthmatic kid and got bullied quite a bit. Yes, I would say that that is abusive, got beat up a handful of times, and those experiences have stuck with me and informed my self-esteem as an adult, despite now being tall and well-built with several years of martial arts training. Darkest Thoughts I hate rude people, and when I come across someone who is rude to me or someone else, like not holding a door open or talking loudly in the cinema or playing music on their phone in public, I imagine beating them severely often to death, breaking their bones, mutilating their body, destroying their skull. There is nothing sexual in this, just a roaring inferno of rage. This fear freezes me from saying anything to the person at all, because if things escalate, I don't know where it will stop. Darkest Secrets I met a girl when I was about 18, and I think she was 17. I liked her a lot. We spent a lot of time smoking weed and fooling around. She'd give me oral sex, sometimes in public places, which I thought was amazing at the time, but would always stop me from going any further than kissing her. One night, she seemed very upset, and when I asked her what was wrong, she told me she used to be a boy. The reason she wouldn't let me go any further than kissing was because she hadn't had any reassignment surgery, and so she still had a penis. I didn't know what to do, so I asked for a few days to think and met her a few days later to talk. I still saw her as a girl and said I'd I'd like to make it work. I can only imagine how great it must have felt to be accepted after the fear of telling me and the dread of waiting those few days. And how fucking horrible it must have felt a few weeks later when I decided that I couldn't come to terms with it and broke it off. The shame I feel around this is complex and layered. I feel shame that I was intimate with a trans woman. I feel shame about that shame because I believe there's nothing wrong with gender dysphoria and feel that my emotional intelligence is not as developed as I wish it was. I also feel shame about how I handled this situation. I feel it would have been better for her if I had broken it off straight away rather than to try to make it work. I have never told anyone about this yet. think about it frequently and still feel ashamed. You know... We have no control over what we are attracted to, what turns us on, what we are comfortable with, and shaming yourself for not feeling different, um, you know. And, and it doesn't sound like you you handled it in a, in a way that was cruel. It was where you were at, and I think I think you're being too hard on yourself. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. My sexual fantasies seem to be mainly influenced by mainstream porn. I fantasize about fucking as many women of varying, in parentheses, legal age, ethnicity, and body types in as many different locations as possible. In real life, despite being very attracted to lots of different women, I'm monogamous and crave intimacy. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? To my partner that I don't feel that this relationship is working, but I'm not sure if it's just my depression telling me that, or if it really is broken. And to the other woman I started an emotional relationship with, but broke it off before anything physical happened, I'm sorry that I'm not in a place where I can understand my own feelings, but it didn't stop me from hurting yours. What if anything do you wish for? I wish my spiritual compass could find its magnetic north instead of spinning around without direction. I wish I knew who I am and what I'm supposed to be doing with my life. You know, you sound like a really good, sensitive guy. And, you know, the fact that you are seeking a spiritual life and authenticity, that's the most important thing. I don't think it comes immediately to any of us. I think it's a lifelong pursuit. But the fact that you're conscious... And and you're trying to move in that direction, and you clearly are an empathetic person. You know it might be good to to um, get into some therapy or some, you know some type of anger management to deal with that rage, because maybe that's maybe that's getting in, in the way of of things. I don't know. I'm not a therapist, but I did cook chicken on basic cable, and I told dick jokes around the country. That's got to count for something. But thank you for uh, for sharing all of that. And then finally, these are some loves filled out by a person who calls himself Stop and Smell the Roses Before You Die. And they write, I love how plumeria trees look dead most of the year, but then suddenly leaves appear and the most Beautiful and lovely smelling flowers start blooming and falling all over the ground. I love ixera, I'm sure I'm pronouncing that wrong, flowers, and how my grandma taught me to pull the thread from the center, revealing a tiny straw that when you suck on it, you get a little shot of sweet nectar. Sweet nectar was a name I was a male dancer under. (laughs) This is so stupid. You know I love the male dancer formula for a joke. I love taking a walk in the neighborhood and getting a strong whiff of flower fragrance, and I can't figure out where from. I love how my kids enjoy the tiny flowers in our yard that most people would consider weeds, and how they pick as many of them as they can to give me before I leave the house to go to therapy or anyone else for, anywhere else for that matter, but it's especially poignant when I'm going to my, quote, doctor appointment. Uh, I love seeing a ficus grow roots from the top of a coral rock wall and how the roots follow the grout lines to reach the ground. I love seeing tree root structures when they have to spread out wide over top of rocky surfaces because the ground is too hard to penetrate all in one spot. I love how cypress trees propagate and grow, quote, knees that sprout up from their roots and eventually become new trees themselves. I love how mangrove seeds float in the water and find soft soil to grow roots and become barriers to erosion and hurricane storm surge. I love how my kids love to find mangrove seeds to throw back into the water in hopes that they will find a place to root after floating for a while. I love seeing a tree that's fallen over, but instead of dying, it just starts growing upwards again. A good example of this is in Universal Studios' Orlando, Dr. Seuss land. Many of those palm trees that are bent in odd directions fell down in Hurricane Andrew and were purchased and replanted because of their unique shapes. I love seeing a mango tree sagging with heavy fruit that seems to be tethered by an all-too-thin stem. And finally, I love seeing a plant growing from where it shouldn't. There's one growing out of a storm drain on my way to work, and I've watched it grow over the past few months. I also saw a sprout coming from my sink's disposal and planted it in the garden. It was a red pepper plant. (laughs) That is so cool. Thank you so much for those. Man, what an observant person you are that I mean that if you can get in a headspace like that even just a couple of times a day oh that's that's therapy that is I don't have words for it how about that how about we end the podcast on me being flummoxed (laughs) if you're out there and you're struggling just know that you are not alone and help is all around us just sometimes it's it's hard to see and if a nut job like me can climb out from the depths of hopelessness and depression i think i think anyone can and never forget that you're not alone and thanks for listening
0: everybody i know is bizarrely beautifully everybody fucked up in some weird way bizarrely beautifully, fucked up, I know way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way